Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. As we are finding our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic and public health emergency that devastated so many lives, particularly in nursing homes, there is an opportunity to look back at what happened, both the good and the bad, and find the lessons we can learn from to perhaps do better in the future. In this episode, Consumer Voice Executive Director Lori Smetanka talks with David Farrell, a licensed nursing home administrator who has spent his entire career in the long-term care profession, about the long-term care facilities that had better outcomes than their peers, or as David notes, facilities that weather the storm of COVID-19 and staffing crisis. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. I'm Lori Smetanka with the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. As we're finding our way out of the COVID pandemic and the public health emergency that devastated so many lives, particularly in nursing homes, there's an opportunity to look back at what happened, both the good and the bad, and to find the lessons we can learn from to perhaps do better in the future. This is particularly true in evaluating what was happening in long-term care facilities prior to and during the pandemic that affected their response to COVID-19 and the subsequent increase in staffing shortages that many facilities are currently experiencing. So today we're going to be talking about those long-term care facilities that had better outcomes than their peers, or as our guest today notes, facilities that weathered the storm of COVID-19 and staffing crises. So our special guest today is David Farrell, a licensed nursing home administrator who has spent his entire career in the long-term care profession. At the age of 21, David started as a nursing assistant to earn extra money while attending college, and that experience inspired him to pursue a master's degree in social work with a concentration in gerontology and administration from Boston College. Throughout a career spanning 33 years, David has consistently implemented patient-centered care using quality improvement practices. A published author and former member of the board of directors at the Pioneer Network, his books, co-authored with Barbara Frank and Kathy Bradley, have received widespread acclaim. Currently, David is working for the Alameda County Public Health Department on the long-term care facility outbreak team, where he's helped support over 600 long-term care facilities in Alameda County, California. David and his colleagues did a deep dive into those facilities that were outliers or stood out from their peers with regard to COVID-19 infections and staffing shortages in Missouri to try to determine what was happening that we could learn from and hopefully replicate. So David, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure to be here. So we know that those living and working in nursing homes were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. More than 200,000 residents and staff died, which was 23% of all COVID deaths in the United States. And in addition, staffing shortages began being reported at crisis levels, yet some nursing homes did better than others in containing the spread of infection and in maintaining staff. So talk a little bit about how you found these homes and what then happened next once you found them and what you were looking at. Sure. Well, it all started with my work with the Alameda County Public Health Department here in in, in California, Alameda Mm -hmm. County, California, where we have over 600 long-term care facilities and 70 nursing homes. So in my role here working for the outbreak team, of course, I've been exposed to those facilities that performed poorly. And uh, 
I've probably gone into a hundred different nursing homes that have performed poorly here in California, Nevada, New Mexico. So I, I began to see the themes, of course, of, of why. And then it began to struck me as, as I looked at the data in Alameda County that, that not all the homes were, were faring poorly. And there were some that just stood out. They were positive deviants who just over and over again, no matter what the wave was, they just didn't end up on our list. They weren't reporting outbreaks. Or if they did, they were small, they were short, with very few hospitalizations and zero to very few deaths. So we ran the data and I, and I went out and began to use some structured interviews to find out what did they do? How did they do it? Were they lucky? Was it something to do with having all private rooms or some other structural advantage. And then we spread the study to Louisiana, Missouri, and South Carolina. So overall, we've interviewed 32 what we call outliers, facilities mm -hmm. that had better COVID outcomes and better staffing outcomes than their peers in four different states. Mm -hmm. Well, it was really interesting as I was reading the article um, that you shared with me about the study that you did and, and looking at it, that the successful homes, there, there wasn't like one commonality about them in terms of size or in terms of location or structure, that they were different. They were different sizes. Some were rural, some were urban, some were nursing homes, some assisted living. So what does that say to you? Well, uh, so much of their success was about the leadership team and the staff they had and some of the, you know, organizational, you know, evidence-based practices that they had in place before the pandemic ever began, like good, solid leadership, high staffing levels, low turnover, those types of things. Um, so many of them had, you know, if that was their advantage, that was a very common advantage. But of course, once again, any nursing home could achieve what I just described if they choose mm -hmm. to follow, you know, the evidence base that's out there. But it, it says that basically you could take the administrator and DON and IP of these homes and put them anywhere and they'd likely be very successful within a few months. Um, so we didn't find structural advantages as the theme. We didn't find all private rooms as the theme. We didn't find not-for-profits as the theme. Um, we didn't find uh, rural versus uh, city as the any type of theme. So they were a very diverse group of outliers that we, we noticed and studied in these four different states. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that is important as you look at what those commonalities are that lead you to better outcomes. Um, this, you know, and, and you talk about, you know, transformational leadership style, and that really led to a number of the other pieces that help, you know, the transformational leadership style seemed to help stabilize the staff and maybe led to reduce turnover or, you know, better outcomes with residents. So anyway, could you talk about what the transformational st leadership style is and what does that mean? Well, in the literature, they refer to the transformational leadership style um, that, you know, drives good nursing home outcomes 
as leaders who can, you know, engage and energize and inspire a group, you know, despite the circumstances. And, and nothing was more difficult to do during COVID outbreaks than then keep your forces, you know, engaged and, you know, following strict infection control policies and donning and doffing requires um, staff to, to be really engaged in what they're doing, right? And so um, that's what transformational leaders do. They're also very inclusive. They're, they're very, um, they communicate well. Um, they're very, um, they're, they're, they're consensus style leaders. I mean, they they embrace huddles, they embrace input, uh, and they they follow the input of their staff basically. And they're humble. They, you know, they don't act like they know it all. They're not autocrats. You know, they let people know what they're thinking. They ask for feedback. And in COVID, that was critically important. You know, leaders only knew so much and they'd have to say that over and over again but they were honest about it and and they would describe that to us in the in the interviews that that we had with them mm -hmm. and it sounds like you know um the the people that you were looking at they had these styles that were incorporated even before covid so you know while a lot of facilities were certainly rattled and shaken by, you know, seeing COVID come, it almost seems like these nursing homes or assisted living facilities, um, they had better systems in place with which to deal with the challenges that were coming towards them. Does Is that what it appeared to you? Yes, yes. And some of those systems uh, would be, as I just mentioned, that they were already having regular huddles with the staff. And those weren't interrupted by COVID. They were just more spread out by six feet or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they already uh, consistently assigned their staff to the same residence every day. So they were already set up for the staff to notice a subtle clinical change that could lead to a COVID test and an early identification compared to, let's say, a registry nurse who doesn't know the resident well and the resident has advanced dementia and can't speak for themselves, they would never notice a subtle clinical change for a quick test and early identification. So, you know, consistent assignment, huddles, community meetings, uh, and as I just mentioned, just humble, inclusive leadership. Um, and, you know, higher staffing levels, you know, to start with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think what went nationwide was the story of a nursing home in Los Angeles where, the, you know, the day after their first positive case in a 99-bed facility, only one CNA showed up for day shift the next day, and the nursing home had to be evacuated. You know, that would be the other end of the spectrum of what we found in these outlier facilities, the other end of the spectrum, right? And that facility, you have to assume that those leaders, you know, were not staffing well, uh, they were not uh, inclusive, that the, you know, the staff abandoned them, right? The staff abandoned abandon them. And that's, that's not, you know, on the staff, that's on the leaders. That's how mm -hmm. I see that. And it's, it's the relationship, uh, you exactly know, that the is. leader builds with, with the staff. And, 
you know, we, we've obviously um, been doing a lot of work looking at, you know, workforce issues and, and looking at staffing levels and talking about turnover and, and what is it that leads to all of those things. And, and what we hear over and over again is, you know, sure, you know, people need to receive a living wage and benefits and, and, you know, that is a really important aspect of their job. But one of the most critical things for many of the staff is that relationship that they have with their leader, they, that they feel that they're part of the team, that they feel valued, that it is a good job, that they feel that they're not only contributing to, but feeling valued as part of that. Um, oh. And it sounds like that is really what was happening in these facilities. Yes, yes. As uh, as Vivian and Mary Tellis Nyack say, nothing moves a CNA more than an administrator or a DON. Nothing impacts her quality of work life or quality of home life more than those two individuals right there. Why? Because they create the work environment, which is an extension of how they view her as a person and whether they value her, truly. And so uh, these leaders uh, that we find in, in these homes um, uh, are really good at, um, as, at, at kind of buffering the, the daily irritants that can make a tough job even tougher in a nursing home. And that's what they're just really, really good at. Mm -hmm. um, and so even throughout COVID, what we learned is that they would take the drudgery out of testing by uh, making sure that the activity department or the uh, management team or the dietary staff were handing out muffins as they did the testing or little prizes. Um, and the kids would often have to watch their parents be tested in a line of cars and they would give the muffins to the kids. And so they made testing kind of Fun. And then another nursing home took the drudgery out of learning about COVID guidance by using their video display system and posting questions and, and raising the competence of the staff. If they answered the questions, they got points, which led to prizes. So they, they were taking a tough situation and trying to make it fun. Um, and in addition, they had specific policies that that not only um, led staff to be more transparent about their exposures, um, but of course that led to people being quarantined timely before you know they possibly spread. So they had the trusting relationship that you just described. So someone would report their exposures right mm -hmm. um, at screening. However, that really isn't enough for a low wage earner who has no PDL time and a space. Mm -hmm two weeks at home with no pay and how will I pay the rent, right? And so many workers in, in a nursing home fit that low wage category. Right. So the outliers always had a safety net to ensure that not only would they have the relationship to report, but they would guarantee that they would not be, you know, that they would pay the rent. So, you know, in one case, they just, um, you know, doubled the eight PDL accruals. And another, many other cases, they allowed the staff to have a negative balance in their sick pay. Right. Others had 
safety nets where they would just pay the rent or pay the electric bill for the employee. So they all had something that um, that got their staff to tell them the truth. Whereas in the homes that don't do so well, they did not have that. You know, they mm -hmm. might be asking the staff to tell the truth, but they weren't giving the financial backing to ensure that they told the truth. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, from, you know, the research you did, it also seemed that they also developed, um, in addition to that piece of that relationship, a trusting relationship where the staff knew that the management, the administrator would work with them if they needed to take care of their own families, for example, or if they needed flexibility with their job. Could you talk a little bit about some of those examples? Sure, sure. You know, in one case, they um, the, a lot of the residents moved out of the assisted living portion of their home. So they, the staff were worried after working in the red zone. So they said, stay here, you know, move into these empty apartments over here. And then they they stocked their refrigerators with the drinks and snacks they, they knew the staff liked and let them bring their pets and, and they purchased hotel rooms for them. You know, they they gave them prepackaged meals to take home and, and what they called care packages that were full of, you know, paper towels and toilet paper, which were hard to come by at some right. junctures, right? Um, but they had, you know, lots of industrial toilet paper and paper towels that they could get easily. So they were giving it to their staff. So they just, they did whatever it took to tell the staff, we care about you, we care about your family. Um, in some cases, when the staff would call and report, I have symptoms, they would go to the staff's home and test them in their garage and test their family members and deliver PPE to the house. And, you know, so they very much cared for the family, you know, just like they expected the staff to care for their residence's family. And mm -hmm. over and over again, they demonstrated that. That's critical because it didn't ever put the staff that in a position of having to make a choice no. because they knew that their family would be cared for, that they could devote whatever, whatever energy they needed to do that. But at the same time, you know, they, they would be willing to show up and, and work to you know, support each other, and and my guess is that you know the staff then were also more willing to support each other if somebody needed some extra accommodation of some sort, like an extra hour here or there, or an extra shift. The staff were willing to fill in for each other because they knew they would get the same back if they it's needed favorite. that as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, favors would be reciprocated. You know, in a home, in a nursing home, that kind of feels like family. Those types of favors are reciprocated. You, you know, oh, you cover for me, I'll cover for you. And and mm -hmm. oftentimes staff work that out um, without management having even to get involved. But mm -hmm. in addition, the leaders gained the trust of the staff because of some of the prevention and mitigation strategies that they did employ that were much different than what you find in nursing homes that struggled. For example, as soon as the rapid point of care antigen test kits arrived from the Department of Health and Human Services in September of 2020, that was a game changer for them. They never went back to lab-based testing just for confirmatory stuff. They 
peeled open the box and they began doing rapid testing on very aggressively, you know, before it was required. They were testing visitors. They were testing their staff twice a week as a means of surveillance. I mean, they just went for it. Again, contrast that with homes that are still struggling today. Many of them are still wed to PCR testing and, oh, we, we get the lab results back in 24 hours. Well, well, geez, you could get it back in 15 minutes, right? Like, what are you right. doing, right? Um, so, you know, that's one piece. And the staff, of course, are, are getting tested and they're seeing everyone get, you know, and they're realizing that working here is, is probably the safest place I could possibly be. There's so much testing going on, right? So mm -hmm. that was one piece. The other thing is, is they achieved very high vaccine and booster rates before it was federally mandated. So that gives all the staff peace of mind and all the residents peace of mind, right? Mm -hmm. And how did they do that? The old fashioned way. They worked at it. They were, they tried to do, you know, they set yeah. goals and they employed at least nine different strategies on average to get it done. You do not find that in homes that are struggling today with 20% of their residents who've gotten the new bivalent booster. They're just, they're not putting their shoulder to the wheel. These facilities put their shoulder to the wheel to get that done. And then mm -hmm. finally, they clean the air. They knew the virus was in the air. So they bought air scrubbers and air purifiers mm. and foggers and staff would see these devices and watch them fogging. And, and while at the time they didn't know if it was working, it was definitely working because you do not find that the homes that struggle have done anything to clean their air. They don't mm -hmm. have any scrubbers. They don't have any purifiers. They, they haven't touched their HVAC system. These homes, you know, uh, went on YouTube and found ways to create and turn their um, old air conditioners into negative pressure devices in rooms. You know, they just went all out and the staff saw the leaders going all out and they knew mm -hmm. that they were like ahead of the guidance and doing it right. And, and staff would make rounds and say, why aren't you wearing your mask right? So, you know, all of that made these staff members feel safe to mm -hmm. come to work, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you didn't feel safe to come to work, you weren't coming to work in a nursing home. And as you know, you know, 225,000 staff left nursing homes. Why? Right. They didn't feel safe. Right. Well, and, you know, um, putting all of those pieces in place, obviously, was very critical. And having some foresight and doing planning, you know, seemed to be really critical, like not waiting until it was at your doorstep, which is, you know, one of the concerns that I had so much during the pandemic, you know, particularly, you know, it hit some areas quicker than others, obviously. And but you could see it, you know, coming across the country. And so I would imagine that those who did better really were watching and employing the variety of strategies like you're talking about, but as well preparing their staff for what was coming too, to say, we've got to be ready for this. We can't wait until it's at our doorstep. 
Sure, sure. It, it was not a federal response. It was a local response. And as such, these leaders could see what the state of New York was putting out for guidance and, and know in California, well, it's just a matter of time till that's our guidance too. So maybe we should like do what New York is doing before, mm-hmm. you know, before uh, the California Department of Health tells us to do it. And that was that was their mindset. They were reading the news everywhere and and knowing that, you know, if New York's requiring twice a week testing and we're doing no weekly testing, then eventually we'll have to. So we might as well just do it now. And sure enough, they would. And then California would respond. So they were just ahead of the guidance. They were They were much more likely to implement guidance before it was required. They were much more likely to sustain the integrity of whatever it was. And now that the guidance is being pulled back, they're the last ones that are going to pull it back. They honestly are. You know, here in California on April 3rd, you don't even have to wear masks in nursing homes anymore. Not at these facilities. The staff will still be wearing masks. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Did you find that, you know, you talked about communication a little bit earlier and how important that was in terms of keeping staff well informed about what was happening, kind of the strategies that were going to be employed. Um, were they also having good communication with the, the families and the residents as well as the staff? Yes, they they did a remarkable job in that. And again, you see wide contrast and variability there. But in these homes, we asked specific questions about that. And Mm -hmm. some of their best practices were to uh, make sure that the um, they all purchased a lot of iPads, of course. So they had the technology, uh, but then they made sure not to burden the CNAs with, oh, you know, set up that conference call or teach that resident how to connect with their daughter. They always uh, had specialists and they were usually the activities or recreation staff, uh, but they made sure that the people who really knew the technology were the specialists and they would do all the organization. Uh, One home I remember said that they organized uh, 23 window visits in one day. Um, So once again, it was a situation where if you really worked at it to keep residents and families connected, you absolutely could with just a few purchases and best practices. Uh, if you just kind of dumped it on the CNAs who were already short staffed and said, you know, oh, help them with calling the daughter, it, it failed miserably, as you would expect. Uh, these were the first homes that you know, develop the concept of hug tents and things like that that you saw in the news. So mm-hmm. um, they were leaders in, in every aspect of keeping residents and families connected. Oftentimes they would have a webinar for the families about what was going on in the home. Every Friday was their community meeting with, with residents, families, and staff. And so that was a common practice for them to always have a weekly webinar to keep the families informed from a you know policy standpoint, what was happening in the home. Yeah. I, I think, you know, um, if, if, 
I would hope that there are uh, nursing home providers that are listening to our podcast and recording today. And, and certainly, you know, from a consumer perspective would say one of the biggest frustrations we heard from families during the pandemic was the lack of communication Mm -hmm. that they were receiving from their nursing homes where their loved ones were living. And those um, that had better communication style that, we're constantly sharing information. This is what's happening here. This is what we're doing. Here's how we're trying to protect your loved one. Here's the situation of what's going on in this facility, having the webinars or the Zoom meetings or you know whatever it took, the constant emails or phone chains. They're the ones that the families are complaining less about because they felt that they were part of the community um, that was, you know, they're working together to protect the residents. Sure, sure. And, uh, at uh, NHC Sumpner in uh, South Carolina, uh, they assigned every department head to take, you know, 15 residents and their families, and they were required to call the, you know, go and visit with the resident and call the family, you know, every week, you know, and they did it for a few years. And, uh, you know, it's amazing what, uh, how helpful a maintenance man can be in a situation like that. And, mm-hmm. and family members, she said that uh, the family members still want to talk to the maintenance man. Yeah. Like, that's how much they love of course. after that relationship was developed. And uh, so, yes, once again, similar to the vaccination, it's a, it's an effort thing, you know, really it is. It's an effort thing. It's not like anything special they did. They just worked harder at it, just like yeah. vaccinations and boosters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the um, other pieces with respect to the leadership that I think, you know, I would imagine made such a big difference for staff was they saw their leaders out kind of in the trenches with them on a regular basis. They weren't sitting in their offices with the doors closed or only coming around once a day for rounds or whatever that was, they literally got in there and were part of the team and got their hands dirty. Yeah, absolutely. These are in the trenches type leaders. Most of the DONs we interviewed had scrubs on. That's how they come to work every day. And they told us, you know, when we we happened to, had to open our red zone, uh, you know, uh, me and the IP were, the DON and the IP were the first, you know, ones to volunteer to to be the nurses on the unit for the first 12 hours, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would come in on nights because, you know, they were had particular concerns about nights. You know, we oftentimes in a nursing home, you would find the night shift has the lowest vaccination rate. They're the less likely to wear their masks right. You know, the they're the, you know, the ones that usually get tested the least, you know, so lots of, lots of risk on nights from a COVID perspective. And they, they intuitively knew that and they were coming in more at night and they were bringing food. They weren't just bringing a whip. They were, they were bringing food. Um, And, um, and I think that helped too. Quite honestly, everything that I'm sharing with you from addressing the air, you know, high vaccination rates, going with point of care antigen testing, you know, is all evidence based now. They just did it before it was evidence based, which is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and um, 
You know, I think, you know, uh, you know, we talked about the foresight, the planning that, you know, went involved. So, you know, it's not that these facilities were lucky. They they did their work and they planned and they put the hard work in to inform themselves, inform their staff um, and put a plan in place that was going to help them be successful. Yes, yes. They were very clear that no matter, you know, where it was, if it were, even if some didn't even get hit till November 2020 for the first outbreak, which again is a testament to how good they were doing, but they never led the staff to believe that it wouldn't hit them too, you know, and they were really studying the facilities around them that did poorly and learning from it. And one thing that they really understood quickly was how dangerous PCR testing and moving and cohorting residents were because PCR testing has an unknown like test turnaround time, 48 Mm -hmm. hours, four days, who knows? And so you're really finding out who was positive two days ago, you know, when you get those results back. So you're always like, oh boy, well, you know, those employees just work two doubles and, you know, oh geez, right? And so these are leaders who would look at the cohorting guidance and look when they got their test results back early on. And, And in many cases, they were like, we're not moving COVID around. We're just not doing it, right? And they would consult with their medical director and the local public health department, and they would close the doors of that unit rather than move it around. And and that was an interesting theme that we saw early on, how they Mm. would buck against that cohorting guidance, which which it was completely rational what they were doing. Um, and, and then, of course, when we had the rapid antigen testing, then they were more likely to move people because, sure. you know, in 15 minutes, you can more safely move someone around. Sure. These, um, these different facilities, you know, we talked about how they were in different locations, different sizes, you know, but they didn't have any special resources. They didn't have a special resident population. They were really, like this could be any long-term care facility with good leadership, good program and practices, right? Sure, sure. We're talking about, you know, the you know, homes in the city of Oakland and rural South Carolina, or, you know, rural Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, um, you know, and in New Orleans and rural Louisiana. So it, it, they're very diverse. Um, and absolutely, you know, the 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 key take home is that any nursing home could have pulled off what the outliers did. You know, the homes in Missouri and and South Carolina, Louisiana were were located in, you know, counties of of concentrated poverty, right? With very low vaccination rates where husbands and wives or employees are saying, you know, don't do it, right? So, you know, what they achieved was remarkable. uh, And they Mm -hmm. achieved it because they were, again, good leaders and they had some key organizational practices in place that that garnered the trust and engagement they needed to get through that time. 
And do you think that the strategies that they employed in these facilities that resulted in in them being these outliers, that that they were resulting in maybe better outcomes in day-to-day operations, even outside of COVID, that they served the facility well before the pandemic hit, they continue to employ these practices after, and they and their residents will have better outcomes, lower turnover, better staff stability, you know, all of those things that we're working towards down the road. Sure, sure. These are these are high performing four or five star facilities, you know, who budget their their staffing to be four and five, right, and get those outcomes. They choose to be successful. They they budget to be successful and and they are, you know, they're also profitable, right? And they're achieving great results and good business results. It's a win-win for everybody and and the staff are being rewarded. So uh, these homes have are successful across a broad base of performance metrics. Mm-hmm. So in the the article, and for those that are listening, we'll um, certainly be happy to share information about the article on the Consumer Voices website at www.theconsumervoice.org. You talk about um, an educational series that was developed that hopefully will help others learn how to employ these good practices. Could you tell people a little bit about that series and how they could get more information about it? Well, sure. Well, we've, you know, just developed a a presentation to kind of capture this, and we delivered it at the, the Consumer Voice Conference. Now it's further refined after more interviews and more states, um, and that will be delivered at the ACA Quality Symposium in mm-hmm. May. Um, and uh, after that, we'll be taking it around South Carolina this summer. And I just delivered it here in California at the CAF convention. Um, so we're really try- trying to get the word out that um, right. the outliers exist and this is what they did. And this is are some of the lessons we should all learn before our next wave, whether that be in July or in the fall, whenever it is. Uh, COVID is still with us. It's still, mm-hmm. you know, affecting nursing home residents um, and uh, nursing home leaders should be employing the tactics that we find in these these outliers. Well, absolutely, David. And I thank you for the work that you have been doing. And certainly um, these best practices are ones that we would really like to see replicated across the country. And we'll certainly do whatever we can to help share them. So um, thanks to those of you for listening to us today. This is Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. And you can get um, more information about the things that we're talking about today, about staffing, about good care practices, about rights issues on the Consumer Voices website at www.theconsumervoice.org. David, thank you so much for being part of the program today. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. This podcast is a program of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information and resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.